Welcome to the second episode of the State of Play, Cronky and Kepa the Keeper. I'm your host, Petrit Barisha, and I'm with my co-host as usual, Matt Santangelo. Matt, how you doing, man? Pretty good. Episode two. Um, you know, it's been pretty good to hear some of the feedback from episode one. So um, yeah, I'm very excited for this one. And again, I thank you guys for uh, subscribing, for the feedback, for sharing, for for everything. It's uh, it's I'm I'm definitely happy to be doing this one for sure. And uh, just to keep going, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a great ride for us for sure. I think the positive feedback has kind of given us more motivation to get more content out, to do more podcasts, and to just you know change things up and bring some different guests on, which I know Pet's gonna jump into uh, in a little bit. Yeah, we were certainly over the moon with the reaction. Uh, I mean, I was messaging Matt like, "What the f- is going on?" We are in the yeah. We were going back and forth on WhatsApp. Like we were just, it was like kind of like a, feels like it was like blowing up. One of those things where it's like you're getting constant notifications. I was getting them, people sharing, people commenting how much they liked it, how much they you know looking forward to doing, uh, seeing, listening to more down the road. So again, just keep coming in, guys, with your feedback, with your support. We really do appreciate it. And um, yeah, sky's the limit for this podcast. I really do believe that. Yeah, it felt almost surreal. I mean, we hit the UK top 50 charts on debut, and then we hit the new and noteworthy on the UK uh, iTunes charts, which is absolutely crazy. To put it in perspective, there's only 12 podcasts that get chosen for that. One of them is the Totally Scottish Football Show, which if you're a UK listener, you're definitely very, very <laughs> accustomed to hearing James Richardson and, and Ian McIntosh on, on episodes of to- the Totally Football Show and the Totally League Show. So that's their new podcast. So we were punching with them. And also a podcast by Business Decider and Stitcher, Stitcher being the, the podcast app. So that's a massive podcast that's just come out and is in the like, top 10 business charts in the uk and the us so we were punching way above our weight so we just wanted to spend a lot like last couple minutes just thanking everyone who listened thanking everyone who shared thanking everyone who subscribed and hopefully this second episode is even better than the first right so let's uh why don't we get straight into it matt the first story is dear to my heart stan Kroenke making a massive bid and succeeding uh, in buying out Alicia Osmanov to take total control of Arsenal Football Club. And my heart aches a bit because it means that it, he now has the ability to make Arsenal a, a private company and, and that means that there's less transparency, no fans own shares and it it, it feels like a, a little bit of love has been lost from Arsenal Football Club. From the outside in, what, what are your opinions on this one? I think, you know, from, from who I've talked to, again, I, I said this on the previous podcast um, recording that, you know, I just because most people associate with me as the Serie A expert or Italian football expert, it doesn't mean I don't get interactions with, you know, Premier League fans, La Liga fans, Liga 1 fans, Bundesliga fans, and even MLS. I get a bunch of different fans, and Arsenal fans specifically, over the past couple months with, you know, uh, the Lucas Torreira, um, you know, acquisition, you know, have been kind of asking, I've been meeting a lot of Arsenal fans, and I've been following a lot as well. And, and from what I've seen uh, on social media and, and the counters I've had with certain people, they're not happy with this. I think it's, you can attest to that you can probably speak more on than I can as, as an Arsenal fan yourself. It's, it, it kind of feels like they're kind of losing that control they feel like it's kind of like the big ownership is kind of you know diminishing what value the 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 regular supporter has the blue collar person that goes to the games those types of people in football have so much importance and i think more than what some maybe some people are led to believe i I think again when i look at this situation i think there's yes it's there's some some people that says well you know maybe he's taking full ownership and maybe their his intentions are good maybe there's going to be a lot more influx of money then maybe they can spend with the clubs like manchester city manchester united but I feel that there's again. Correct me if I'm wrong. I feel that a lot, a lot of the supporters, the majority, really just don't like this uh, possible takeover from Kroenke. I just think for for everything he's, you know, he could po- that could possibly happen as a result of this majority uh, takeover. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly the reaction that a lot of Arsenal fans have had. It, it certainly seems like a a dark day after a summer of positivity and a summer of change i think we touched on the last episode even gazidis the, the ceo looking to maybe jump ship and, and join your club milan which would hurt me uh, <laughs> and i think since then the uneasiness and and now with Kronke 
basically taking over with a majority stake and a, basically a full stake. I think he's probably taken this opportunity because it has been that summer of change. Arsene Wenger has left. There's a new kind of management structure. And a KSE statement, which is the, the company that he owns, said that taking the club private will help to further Arsenal's strategy and ambitions. Again, very vague. No one knows what that means. No one. They haven't outlined like a roadmap of, of how much money they're going to kind of invest into the club. And while Kronke says taking sole ownership will benefit the club, the Arsenal Sports Trouble, otherwise known as the AST, called the news a dreadful day for the Gunners, which uh, I, I, I kind of stand by. And Stan Kroenke taking the club private will see the end of supporters owning shares in Arsenal and their role upholding custodianship values. So uh, this custody thing where Arsenal fans, even if they don't own that much of Arsenal, there's still that slight affinity knowing that even that little bit of Arsenal Football Club will always be owned by the, as you said, blue collar person on the street. And now that we've been taken over properly by this corporate entity, it just feels quite strange and it, and it feels like a bit of love has again been sucked out of Arsenal Football Club. The AST went on to say that detrimental actions such as paying management fees and dividends without any check or balance, I think a season ago that um, Stan Kroenke actually took a management consultancy fee of about £2 million from Arsenal Football Club and the AST rightly asked why that was taken. It was obviously never answered. And also lastly it added that they were very concerned that the purchase was being funded by loans so Stan Kroenke I think he's paying with he's staying he's paying about 550 million pounds for it he's paying with 45 million pounds of his own money and loaning the rest which I guess from a business uh, perspective and you can probably speak about this as well Matt it's it's I wouldn't say it's a particular concern on that note because obviously leveraging debt is is something that businessmen like to do. But it is is concerning because does that mean that then he takes the profits and dividends from there on in and and pays off this loan? And and does that mean that Arsenal have less money to spend in future transfer windows? I'm not sure. I, I feel very strange about this. And I feel that after this quite surreal summer where we've lost Arsene Wenger, We've bought in a whole new management structure over the last 12 months. And then we had the Gazidis kind of uncertainty. And, and and still that uncertainty is there. Now this bombshell has been dropped just before the season, which I find the um, the news or the, the, the timing of the news very strange. On top of all that, the man that he's buying it from, who, who's uh, said that he's an Arsenal fan and, and loved Arsene Wenger, loved Arsenal, said he would never share... Uh, he said he would never sell his shares under any circumstance. He said that... He wanted to pass these shares down to his son, his grandsons, and money talks at the end of the day, doesn't it, Matt? Money does talk, right? I think if you look at, you know, even with the Milan situation, I think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between the two sides. I think, again, for the most part, obviously, we all know what Milan's been going through the past several years, but it hasn't really been obviously comparable to Arsenal in terms of, you know, the stability, the structure, you know, being able to spend because I think Arsenal have been a healthier organization overall. But I think what it what it does is that we saw with even with Berlusconi at, at, towards the tail end of his era, he, the reason one of the reasons why he sold was because he he said he was a, a family like like the Berlusconis they can't compete with their own investments by spending in the market and I think that's kind of one of the reasons why he was kind of forced to sell when he bought the club at the tail end of the eighties things were different obviously the big money t- clubs weren't so much prevalent and having a big uh, impact in the game. Now, all of a sudden, you kind of throw that in there. So maybe this is what, in 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 a similar way, that that Kroenke's thinking of or his idea of of this majority ownership is 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 to get that that more control, that more that more uh, influx of investment. But again, I think there's there's got to be that balance. I, I feel as a, as a fan first and foremost. So again, obviously, we both are. Um, we consider ourselves professionals in the uh, football industry for the podcasting for the journalistic stuff we do. They're still a fan. We're still fans of the game at the end of the day, and those are the types of things you those 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 fan and culture, uh, the fan values and the culture uh, of the of the supporter. You want that to maybe be uh, embedded in the fabric until the club ceases to exist. And I think that's kind of the one of the biggest things that we're seeing with Milan was, you know, when you get a guy like Leonardo and then you get Maldini and you have Gattuso as the coach. These are guys that are not only a good at what they do or supposed to be good at what they do but they also know what it means to wear a heavy shirt like Milan's and I think when you take away the supporter stake in this in the club like you're telling me with Arsenal here 
I think you kind of diminish what value the the the, the regular supporter has and that what kind of control they can possibly have because we saw how many times throughout the past couple years with the whole Arsene Wenger out you know uh, brigade how much how much of a voice how much of a mouthpiece they really are and I think that's what I think some people are fearful of with this whole ownership situation is that if Kroenke comes in and he's the full-fledged owner and he has the majority of this club what does that do for the supporter? They kind of lose a little bit of that control, that that a little bit of ability they had to impact maybe um, the decision making at the top, you know, possibly the market. So those are the things that I kind of look at in a in a in a ownership takeover. Is how does it? Yes, how it affects obviously the product on the field, but also the image of the club and what the supporter the supporters value means, you know, after it's all said and done. Mm, certainly so I, I, before I get any more upset on this I think that uh, we'll probably see Josh Kroenke his son come in and I think he's kind of an operations guy who, who works on, on all the clubs that the the Kroenke family own I think he'll come in and, and probably do a bit more at Arsenal but to counteract that I think we can draw parallels again. You saw what you said, Maldini coming back. I'll pro- I think we'll probably see links to Thierry Henry coming back in a coaching capacity. And I think Dennis Burkamp has been linked before. Uh, obviously, Patrick Vieira, before he, he went off to Nice, was seen as a candidate. Mikel Arteta for the for the coaching role at Arsenal. I think we'll probably see Freddie Jumberg quickly rise up the ranks. And Robert Perez is still a... Um, an Arsenal ambassador. So maybe we see those guys have a slightly bigger voice and, and try and influence proceedings slightly more from the inside out rather than what we saw with, you know, Arsenal fan TV, the, the, the not riots, the um, protests against the, the crunky ownership, against um, uh, Gazidis and against Arsene Wenger, first and foremost. Those things, whether you like them or not, probably did have an impact on the um on the decision to to let Arsene Wenger go so whether or not we see more of that because these fans are going to be aggravated I'm not sure but we'll see where they where these things go but Matt Kroenke doesn't only own Arsenal Football Club he also owns the LA Rams the American football side in the NFL he owns the Denver Nuggets in the NBA a basketball team for you UK listeners and European listeners who aren't NBA fans he owns the National Hockey League outfit Colorado Avalanche and finally the Major League Soccer side Colorado Rapids so I think you know a bit about the LA Rams and a bit about Colorado Rapids so why don't you tell us about those two and how Kronke has tried to grow those franchises. Well, I mean, more so with the with the Rams because I think the Rapids, you know, they're kind of a, a a organization or franchise MLS that are still kind of trying to establish something, if you will, in, in MLS. And what I mean by that is, you know, they're trying to find whether they want to kind of pursue to be more in the upper echelon of of an MLS franchise that's regularly competing, that's going to be um, have its footprint. And Major League Soccer. So I, I think what I want to do with now is just speak more on the Rams because I think with the Rams, it's more of a little bit more of a fascinating thing because I think with the Rams, there's a lot of money involved. And, and, and in many ways, you can draw some similarities between, you know, the American football structure and the uh, European football structure. So with the Rams, obviously, you know, they've recently, they've been kind of, you know, having a little bit more of a... Uh, a footprint in in football, and what I mean by footprint is that what they're doing is they're 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 more having more of an impact, or they're a better better team than what they have been recently. And I think a lot of the things that have happened because of obviously their ability to draft. And for those who are not familiar with drafting, every year they have an annual draft. They draft college players, um, and and they pretty much try to integrate them into a system that works best and obviously gets results on the field. But what besides that? It, Last year they had a fantastic year. Obviously the Rams are they're kind of on that up up and coming trajectory um, in NFL. Although again they you know every sport has cycles of teams being good, teams not being good. There's these windows that kind of come in and out. And so for for the Rams again they got a young coach uh, named Sean McVay. Uh, really exciting team. They have a young quarterback that they drafted through they got through the draft. But this off season, but what they did was compared to recent uh, previous off seasons is they. They're looking. They're showing that intent to go the extra mile. And what I mean by that mean by that is they had a good run in um, in the playoffs last year, but they kind of fizzled out a little bit and they kind of dropped out. And obviously, they didn't win the Super Bowl. So what what did they do? Rather than kind of trying to stay at the status quo and run the risk of regressing, they put money back into free agency. Free agency compared to the transfer window, if you will, in that they went after 
to when went to fill the needs or well to fill the fill the voids that kind of maybe otherwise affected them last year from doing more better than they should that better than they uh, or doing better excuse me uh, than most people expected. So they went out there, they addressed a couple needs, they spent the money, and now they're kind of really going for it. They're not trying to settle with maybe a division victory. Um, they're trying to go for maybe a a, a, a a NFC championship, which again it's you know for those who are not familiar with the uh, NFL format or structuring of, of the divisions, it's NFC and AFC. So NFC that are NFC West team, they're trying to go for an NFC uh, NFC crown and possibly even compete for a Super Bowl. So when I look at the Rams, I think that could be a little bit of a glimmer of hope because in the sense that the Rams are in a big market, Los Angeles now, they used to be in St. Louis. So there's something there where, you know, okay, Kroenke's in a big market with this club or this franchise. They're spending the money there. They're, they're really trying to make that effort to go for it and not settle. So does that same mindset or logic for Kroenke apply? Should he have the full ownership of Arsenal? Maybe. But again, I think it's there's there's while there are some similarities between the two, uh, uh, you know, possible owner uh, teams he's going to own. You also kind of have to kind of keep into the fact that in you know, in the the NFL way of doing things is a little bit different than obviously the European soccer, but uh, European football, excuse me, uh, way of doing things. So overall, again, if we're just looking at the teams he's owned, teams he's had a stake in, or teams that really he controls, the Rams are 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 a model that we, you would hope. Is is somewhat uh, resemblance uh, of that what he can uh, you know bring to Arsenal Football Club and that okay he's they're gonna try and compete they're not gonna just sit there and say oh we're content with a fourth place finish we're gonna try to stay right there no I think what Arsenal and again correct me if I'm wrong obviously this goes with that saying is that for a team like Arsenal they're they're sick and tired of sitting back and seeing City seeing United seeing Chelsea continually battle for the title. I think Arsenal really want to make that push and really kind of make it known that they're legitimate. They're, they they want to continually push forward to can get that silverware. And I think hopefully, again, if this is me just observing it from you know an outsider's perspective, hopefully with Kroenke, it's not so much, yes, even if maybe the, the supporters do lose that power, again, that we touched upon earlier, that Kroenke has the right intentions, the right ideas in that he's not going to just sit back like we've had, like we've seen previously with Arsenal, um, in in kind of staying like kind of in the middle of the pack in terms of those the big guys in the Premier League, but make those efforts to kind of say, look, we see what our arrivals are doing. This is what my intentions are with this ownership, with me having the full stake. Now I'm going to go be able to charge forward and compete for titles and bigger and better things. And I think that's what. Arsenal fans are hopeful of in drawing comparisons between them and, and the Rams and maybe some of the other teams that Kroenke owns. Well, you've made me feel a bit happier there, Matt. <laughs> uh, well, I, yeah, I think that, <laughs> yeah, from from what you've said, and I'm no NFL expert, I know a, a bit more about the N- NBA, but yeah, if he if they're making a lot of moves in the offseason, and I certainly think that the last two transfer windows for Arsenal in January and, and this summer have been a lot more positive than the previous ones. Obviously, uh, Alexander, even if we rewind all the way back to last summer, Alexander Lacazette, big signing, then January. Aubameyang, big signing. Lucas Torreira this summer, obviously not a massive money signing, but I know you highly rate him, so I don't want to get into that one before we... Uh... I could go all day. Episode 3 is dedicated to Torreira, guys. Uh, yeah, so we don't want to get into that one before uh, before Matt actually talks my ear off. And we actually went and talked to Billy Marsh, who is a Denver Nuggets expert. Uh, Denver Nuggets, the basketball team in the NBA, and he talked a bit about how Kroenke is perceived by their fans and, and how they're doing. This is Billy Marshall. I write for SB Nation, mainly focusing on the NFL, but I've also taken a keen interest in the NBA, particularly the Denver Nuggets. They've been my team for quite a while. Uh, in addition to that, I'm a huge football fan, uh, European football to be exact. I follow Serie A closely along with uh, La Liga and, of course, the Premier League as well. Well, Billy, thanks so much for coming on. And I think you're going to be the perfect man to tell us about Stan Kroenke and, and how he's done as an owner at the Denver Nuggets. Okay, I'll be glad to help. So... Uh, w- how, what were the Denver Nuggets as a franchise before Stan Kroenke came along? So the Nuggets, in they've never had too many too much success. Uh, I think when they were first uh, an expansion team in around the late '60s, uh, they made the playoffs like their first like ten or twelve years in existence. 
but that's mainly as a result because of there weren't many teams in the NBA at that time. But I would say the preceding five years before Kroenke took over, the Nuggets were probably one of the worst teams in the NBA. Uh, they didn't have much fanfare. They were not attracting a lot of attention nationally, and they just weren't winning many basketball games. So when he came in in 2000, uh, I think the deal that was reported was he agreed to purchase the Colorado Avalanche and the Pepsi Center too, which is the arena they play in. It was because at the time the ownership, previous ownership, had control of both teams and the arena. So when he purchased them, I think their first big move was in 2003 when they drafted Carmelo Anthony, um, and that came after a 17-65 and 65 season. So it, it's cool that they actually got to reap some of the rewards for being so terrible the previous year. <laughs> and, you know, with Carmelo, they were instantly turned into you know, a powerhouse in the Western Conference. Uh, and in 2005, a year later, they hired George Carl, and they made the playoffs nine straight years under Carl's coaching. Um, and this was like a big win for Kroenke personally because George Carl, previous to coming to Denver, he was a successful NBA coach in Seattle and Milwaukee. So it was really like, I think the fans kind of start started to buy in with the team. They became like one of the Pepsi center became like a fortress because not only did you have like the altitude on your side, you'd had like a lot more fans finally taking an interest and uh, they would sell out games like regularly, especially regular season games. But in 2013, they dismissed uh, George Carl because uh, during you know the streak that they had, their nine straight appearances in the playoffs, they only made it past the first round once, and that was in 2009 when they played the Lakers in the conference finals. And, uh, of course, the Lakers, they went on to win a championship. But in 2013, they faced an up-and-coming team from the Bay Area that is known as the Golden State Warriors, which is probably one of the greatest dynasties in sports right now. And they, they managed to lose them in six games. And I think that decision kind of turned sour on a lot of fans. Uh, because Carl, he was a successful coach, and he kind of really resonated with the city. He underwent cancer treatment at the time, and fans just didn't really like the way his exit went. But it's hard to blame Kroenke uh, looking back on it, because, I mean, if you're making it to the playoffs, you're not making it out in the first round. It's sort of like an, a necessary risk to take. Uh, and then the higher after that, he hired Brian Shaw, who was a successful NBA player under Phil Jackson with the Lakers. He won multiple championships. Uh, he served time as an assistant under Jackson. And uh, during this time, he was an assistant with the, uh, Frank Vogel at the, with the Pacers. And they obviously were an up-and-coming team. They had all those great battles with LeBron in the Miami Heat. Uh, so this was like a positive hire because a lot of fans were excited. They've got this up-and-coming coach that maybe they can potentially progress past the first round. But in reality, Shaw was like a terrible fit. He didn't get along with the players. I think the mood around the organization and just the fan base really started to precipitate. It was just a terrible marriage. And after like a year and a half, he just they went their separate directions. And during this time, I think it was around 2015, Kroenke, he um, elevated his son, Josh Kroenke, to take more of a face <laughs> role with the nuggets and kind of be like the face of the organization and taking on the operations and uh, figuring out you know, ways to kind of modernize the team and make sure that they are so just attention. Very, very similar to, to what he's done at Arsenal then yeah, by, by promoting think, Josh Crane because it's part of the board. Right. Well, yeah, for sure. And I don't know how it's going to go there, but I would say that what Kroenke's accomplished the past four seasons in Denver has been positive. Uh, and because the Nuggets, they aren't terrible enough to be tanking where, you know, they're picking like in the top five. They've been selecting a lot of players, you know, late, like in the mid part of the draft, which is a little difficult to find talent. But they've been able to draft and develop some guys like Nikola Jokic, uh, Gary Harris, Jamal Murray, Malik Beasley, and they just drafted Michael Porter Jr. Uh, so they've been doing a really good job developing young talent. I think one thing you kind of... Uh, the, like in a way to judge like how, how much investment an owner is making into a team is by how much you're spending on salaries. And the Nuggets were close to going into the luxury tax line this past year. And what the luxury tax is, is 
the NBA, they have a soft cap. It's not like the NFL where they have a hard cap. And essentially that means that you can go over the cap, but you have to pay like a luxury tax payment. Uh, but there was a point where they were $23 million over that tax line. Wow. And the tax payment would have been near $80 million because what you're doing in that sense is for every $20 million or for every $5 million that you're over, you have to pay like a certain price per that dollar. So it would have been like near $80 million. And that's what Kroenke would have been had, would have had to pay. But I yeah. think that he's gotten some criticism you know, from national circles that, okay, why aren't you paying this tax? You have a, a good team. But, like, at the end of the day, like, I'm sure, I don't know how close you fall basketball. Like, the Warriors are going to win the championship. But it doesn't make sense for the owner to pay $80 million and ruin his flexibility and his tax payment. Mm. So it makes sense when you're a team like the Warriors or the Cavaliers or maybe even the Rockets where you have, like, you know, a one in four or five chance to win the title. So what he did was, um, or what the Nuggets did in essence under Kronk, Josh Kroenke's leadership and Tim Connolly, who's their general manager, they managed to trade uh, three players, Kenneth Freed, Drell Arthur, and Wilson Chandler, and that's about $33 million in salaries that they were able to ship out. And those guys are kind of old, they're aging, they're not really useful NBA players, especially in today's game. Uh, so that kind of brought their salary $8.7 million below the tax line, which avoids the Kroenke's paying any type of luxury tax savings. And I'm fine with that. For the simple reason, like, I don't care how much the Kronkies pay, like, that's ceremony, they're billionaires, like, they can do whatever they want, but it just, it gives the Nuggets financial flexibility in the future to sign, to re-sign some of their younger players, mm -hmm. which I do care about, because I think if you could maintain the continuity with this team, then they can do some things pretty special, and and to give credit to the Kronkies, they re-signed uh, Nikola Jokic, who's probably one of their best young players, and he's arguably, like, a top five uh, offensive player in the entire NBA. Uh, he's, he's a great young talent. He's from Europe, and uh, his progression has been wonderful to watch. So C Certainly an exciting player, isn't he? Uh, Nikola Jokic. And I think we've seen that a little bit at Arsenal as well, investing in uh, youth. Uh, Luca Torreira, who, who Matt obviously loves uh, very, very much and, and openly so. But, Billy, I wanted to ask you before, before you leave us, what's the general perception from fans with uh, Stan Kroenke because over here in London with Arsenal a lot of Arsenal fans dislike him to be frank I think it I think with Stan Kroenke it's a little indifferent I think the I think the mood has changed in a way because now that his son is in charge uh, his son is you know well how should I put he's 38 years old and he's a handsome guy so he's gonna he looks like kind of the American dream that a lot of people would like to son of a billionaire and he has like, <laughs> the presence about him where he can sell himself really well so i think from that perspective i think josh is doing a lot to win back fans but at this moment in time the marketing situation in denver it's not fun to watch i mean they're they're not selling out games as consistently as they did when carl was the coach um you know it's an expensive team as much as they cleared out as much cap space and you know, I think the the way that Stan Kroenke kind of runs his operations is the same way that his father-in-law ran his operations, and that's Sam Walton, who was a former founder of Walmart. Um, so he likes to kind of look for those cheap deals and try to make <laughs> sure that his investment is lining up. And again, that's fine, and I don't have a problem with it, um, because I think that this current iteration of the Nuggets, it's a team that is ascending so it probably doesn't make sense to spend luxury tax payments and ruining your flexibility to re-sign younger players. But I think that when you're in a market like Denver, where the NFL is so popular, and you're just it's a great city too, you, you have to kind of win games to bring back <laughs> fans. And I mean, they were literally one game away from the playoffs last year. I think that this season they are expected to make the playoffs and we'll see how the fans get to that. But right now, I would say that it, it it's not like an issue of resentment. They don't want him like gone or they don't want him selling the team. But I think that they have to start winning in order for the fans to start coming back. Because right now, the mood is kind of you know, iffy on a part of the entire fan base. <laughs> so iffy is the the general response there billy but thank you so much for coming on man where can people find out more about you sure so uh you can find me at on twitter at billy m underscore 91 
uh, you know, I tweet a lot about the Carolina Panthers. I cover them for SB Nation, but, uh, you know, I follow Serie A and La Liga during the weekend. So you can follow my tweets there too. Thanks so much, Billy. And uh, I think we need to move on, Matt. I think we need to move on. And the UK transfer deadline day was on Thursday the 8th of August, the earliest it's ever been. And it left a lot of fans wanting more. I mean, Everton managed to wrangle Yerry Mina and uh, Andre Gomez, which was great for them. Uh, United made absolutely no signings. Spurs made absolutely no signings throughout the whole of the transfer window, which was the first time ever in history that's happened in the Premier League. Uh, no, no incomings from Arsenal, no incomings from uh, City. Liverpool did deal with their business pretty early. So, uh, I mean, from the outside in, pretty quiet on the uh, the shores of England. A lot of the clubs that you know, at the top, um, you know, the, the usual teams that we see as very active, they did a lot of their damage and a lot of their um, their transfer dealings early in the window. I think that you know, obviously, City really didn't put much into. They got Ray and Mahrez, uh, Chelsea. You know, recently they got Jorginho. Uh, they're able to get Kovacic. Um, you know, obviously they lost Courtois, but you know, I I think this what this window showed me again, just you know, as an outsider, I can I I do watch the Premier League uh, for quite a bit. Um, I have access to it on NBC Sports Network in in, in the states here. Is that the, the, a lot of the, the the teams that just got prom- like to see some of these teams that that just get gained promotion, Fulham, uh, Wolverhampton. I mean, these teams are spending a ton of money, but they got that ambition. I think that's that's such a crazy thing to think that like a team like Fulham or you know the Wolves that the the the, the additions they made. They could easily go from being like a bottom of the table team or a championship club team to competing like for like a mid table spot. I, I think that's what's kind of always been fascinating about me. Again, you know, uh, you know, there's people that are gonna say, "Oh, do you, do you think, really think Fulham is gonna compete for a tenth or eleventh? It's, I mean, who knows? I, I think stranger things have happened. Obviously, we've seen Leicester City win the title out of nowhere. <laughs> so I guess anything can happen. But on the surface, again, fr- from what I've observed. Is you know teams like Fulham and, and Wolves, they, those are the team two teams that stood out for me because you know they're getting not just like good value, but they're getting players that are, have big names. They have you know that notoriety uh, you know in in football, and it's it's kind of interesting. To, it's going to be interesting to follow those teams. I think everyone kind of gets so fascinated and they get invested in what the cities and you know United and Tottenham, as you just mentioned, who didn't make any moves, but. To see what some of those teams at the bottom do to kind of push themselves over the edge and saying, "Hey, look, we're we're at the bottom of the table here. You know, what's our next step?" Because if you're in the Premier League, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of opportunity there. That I think if you have the right transfer approach, you have the right brain trust making the decisions. The money's there for these clubs to kind of push on and do a little bit more. And again, obviously, we know that obviously the higher you finish in the table, the more money and opportunity is there to kind of be a uh, you know a, a more quality Premier League team for more, not just one year but for for multiple years. So that's what I kind of took from the transfer deadline, really just from the um, you know the entire window in general is what some of these other teams have been doing and where they're getting value. I mean. You know, even Everton, again, Everton have been, uh, you know, they've been kind of turning heads, getting on to pretty much three Barcelona players. Uh, Richarlison was a great addition as well, although, again, it's a ton of money from what I see. I think he's quite clearly, he is talented, but again, again, time will tell to see if he lives up to that fee. But yeah, getting uh, Mina, getting uh, Digne, and also getting uh, Gomez, I mean, Everton have, were very active, and I think they could be one of those teams, right? Look, listen, if you know, if Everton, they, they're seeing what Liverpool is doing. They, they, the teams that are, you know, they're the rivals Liverpool are spending a ton of money and making some big waves there, and obviously they made a Champions League final last year. Everton aren't just sitting back. They're going to be spending their own money, and they made some pretty nice additions, so it's going to be interesting to see um, how this Premier League, Premier League table shapes up, and I th- I'm sure you're very excited, obviously, with the season to start, and I still have to wait a couple weeks for Serie A, but... I, I, you know, I'll, I'll definitely take the Premier League uh, action early on against football. F- football's football for me, and uh, I just like to see it back. <laughs> yeah, certainly, certainly excited to see it back. And you, you touched on Wolves and Fulham there. Fulham getting John Surrey. What a signing that is! Linked with Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester City. He was almost off to Barcelona this time last summer, and for Fulham, Fulham Football Club to get him on the eve of their promotion is absolutely ridiculous and also keeping Ryan Sessegnon big big move that that that's big like keeping 
probably the most talented, uh, along with maybe Callum Hudson-Odoi and uh, Jaden Sancho. I think you've got a, a Arsenal, Reese Nelson, and a few other guys, the, the most talented English youngsters out there. To keep him at Fulham, big move. And also you talk about, we talk about John Surrey again, just just a huge, huge transfer. I think that took everyone by surprise. I think that took people so much by surprise that they started to doubt Dimazio, which is insane. Again, and I think that just speaks volumes to what some of these teams with their ambitions are. You know, when you could get a guy like him, it's just out of, out of nowhere. It kind of, well, it turns some heads, it gets some attention back on you. And then, again, obviously having that presence, and not only just on the pitch, but in the changing room, that's also a big, a big thing into it. So I like to talk about some of those things at myself when people ask me what type of impact he can bring. I think people always kind of gravitate towards, well, what can he do on the pitch? What can he do, um, you know, on a day-to-day basis or weekly basis each match day? But I think it's the biggest thing is here is getting a guy like that in the locker room can really change the dynamic. It could get a lot of those younger players, and not not just, you know, at, at his position, but it could get a lot of those younger players up and down the roster to see what it feels like to be around a player like that and to train the way he does and the way you approach uh, your training, your preparation, your... Um, your, your fitness, your your diet plan, all these different things, how you're supposed to prepare yourself and handle yourself as a professional footballer in the top level. That's also a big thing that I think comes with this move. Yeah, for sure. I think that that inspiration that a player of his caliber will give the rest of the squad is is invaluable. And Andre Schurler as well, joining Chelsea, former Chelsea, former Dortmund, b- pretty big name and, and still a, a useful player. Uh, they managed to keep Tom Kearney as well, which is a, a, a very decent uh, keep as well. Just as important as Ryan Sessegnon. He's obviously scored in the, the playoff final, Kearney, and uh, a lot of clubs were looking at him. Wolves, Jao Matinho. Uh, <laughs> for one, um, Rui Patricio, Rui Patricio, from Napoli. Crazy, they had that whole situation with sporting, which was kind of a mess. But that's a good, that's a good addition. Well, Patricio is a really, really good keeper. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're exploiting the uh, the relationship that, that the manager and um, has with Minerola and, and all these other big, big agents in getting that Portuguese talent. I think they were linked with a, a sixty million euro move for and and uh, for Guedes as well uh, on deadline day, which would have been absolutely insane. But uh, luckily for us, we, we managed to keep our hats on, and, and it didn't go that crazy. But yeah. Wolves and Fulham made some absolutely brilliant moves. Oh, in the top half of the table, obviously Liverpool, I think, are the biggest winners. Uh, Fabinho didn't manage to get Fakir over the line, but Alisson, Fabinho, and obviously they, they brought in Virgil van Dijk uh, in, in January. So a, a very, very good nine months for them. But we'll move on. I think you've got a story for us uh, over in the US. Uh, LAFC making an acquisition. Yeah, so um, LAFC, obviously new one of the, the newest MLS franchise this year, off to a very good start. Quite a bit of talent. Um, obviously, Diego Rossi, Carlos Vela, Laurent Simon among the top names that they have on their roster. But they acquired Josh Perez. Now, for those who aren't familiar, American international. He's was recently playing his uh, football at Fiorentina. He was on loan this last year. Um, again, of course, for a team like LAFC to get a guy like Perez to bring back to LA uh, to Los Angeles. He's a homegrown kid there. Um, that's a good move for LAFC. I think you know what I've seen in year one from LAFC as an organization. Um, and their decisions, the way they market, the way they brand, um, and all these different things that come into play in, in running a, a, a new franchise, is it's been sensational. I think they've, they've statistically, again, you know, uh, don't hold me to this, but I believe they were, um, at least a week ago, two weeks ago, they, they were uh, the best performing uh, expansion club in its first year um, ever. So, again, that's based off, obviously, points accumulated. But, again, to get a guy like Perez, who, who again, he has uh, European experience. You know, Fiorentina is a very good club, although he really didn't play much for them. Um, obviously, again, they're, they're getting that European talent uh, or that international talent to come back to the States. And I think that's also a good move for him. Again, of course, time will tell to see how much action he gets. Obviously, LAFC are doing really well. They, uh, the formation, the tactics that Bob Bradley has been um, working with, of course, Bob Bradley, former Swansea coach, um, you know, and Egypt coach as well, and men's national team as well, is it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how he kind of integrates Perez because Perez is definitely talented. Um, he's definitely got uh, ability for sure, but it's you know how he integrates a new attacker like Perez is going to be interesting, and I think 
you know, that's something to kind of keep an eye on if you're uh, coming to us for MLS content. Again, of course, we do appreciate that. We, we hope that we're going to continue to cover this uh, this league because it is definitely growing. There's a lot of new names coming in and out. And uh, there's a lot of excitement coming around the league with, with you know, top young talents from South America specifically. So, you know, LAFC is definitely one of the, one of the teams that are kind of setting the tone and, and really trying to shy away from that old, outdated model of the old designated player by getting a lot more younger players, players that can play a, a key role now and for the future and kind of build more of a foundation that they could work with past year one of their franchise because they're doing really well. And I think Perez is uh, just another acquisition that kind of shows us what type of mindset, what what approach they are going for when looking for talents is younger guys, guys that are going to be helping them out now that Bradley maybe is familiar with, again, of course, with that that uh, link with the uh, the U.S. system, U.S. men's national team system. So, again, Perez to LAFC. That's one of the more recent moves. Of course, players are kind of coming and going, it kind of players trickling in and out. But I just wanted to make that point because of me being the, the, the Syria, the made in Syria expert, um, on the State of Play pod, of course, uh, I just had to make my connection there with Fiorentina. Uh, Fiorentina's Josh Perez going to LAFC in the MLS. He had to do it. It couldn't just be an MLS story. It had no, to have a Serie A. It, it wouldn't be any. It wouldn't be a Matt Santangelo story if it, if it didn't have a bit of Serie A in there. But certainly a lot of excitement in the MLS. Obviously, we've we've seen the old desi- designated players like uh, Zlatan do extremely well. But also, we are seeing that South American talent maybe choose the MLS instead of uh, uh, Portuguese clubs which we've seen traditionally a lot of South American players like the likes of Quintero the likes of James going into uh, play for Porto and uh, play for Benfica uh, sporting as well so let's see if in the next five years next I don't know even even two years we see more players choosing the MLS maybe for their lifestyle uh, and maybe I don't know maybe uh, there's more of an opportunity to be a, more of a big fish in a, in a smaller pond because obviously the, the Portuguese league is more competitive than the MLS it's uh, it's certainly interesting for them and it, it's kind of that not the American dream but that uh, that that is still seen as in some respects as that land of opportunity isn't it absolutely again I think what we're seeing here is in, in you know in the past couple of years is that the, the, the model the approach the mindset for what this league needs in order to grow, in order to be kind of taken uh, more seriously, and it kind of put in the same limelight, um, at down, you know, you know, same limelight. You no, know, not now, obviously, because it's going to take time. But as you know, the big leagues, the top five leagues that we obviously cover on this podcast as well, is shifting away from that that reputation as being like a retirement league, a place where people go for an easy paycheck. Um, again, of, of course, I think the Wayne Rooney edition is kind of a weird one for me. I think it obviously helps DC United because they really haven't had a guy like that in recent years. Um, Wayne Rooney, of course, obviously has a, the Manchester United. He's an England legend, goes without saying. But, you know, how much he has left, how, that time will tell. I think DC United are allocating like almost, almost 50% of their actual like budget you know, yearly budget and weight and salary towards a guy like Wayne Rooney. So uh, I don't know. I think for me, again, what LAFC is doing and, and some of the other clubs are doing as well is Atlanta United. They're another one, obviously. They've been fantastic. And Joseph Martinez has just been lighting it up ever since he arrived here is going for that South American talent, you know, maybe 23 or 24 years old, a guy that, you know, maybe they're not afraid to say, you know, like, we understand that maybe he's going to move, you know, down the line to a team back in Europe. Of course, Martinez played with Torino and uh, Serie A before he actually moved to uh, Atlanta United. But I think again, in the grander scheme of things, you have to look at MLS as about baby in comparison to, um, you know, Bundesliga, to Premier League, to Serie A, as it's only really twenty something years old. So if they're able to kind of at this stage of of existence shift away and start to be saying, hey, look, this is a, a league that you know it's competitive. You're gonna get paid well. You're gonna have the opportunity to take this opportunity, take this platform, and leverage it into a bigger move, maybe in, in Europe somewhere down the line, or, or South America. Then I think you're gonna find a lot more players willing to do that. And I think again, Miguel Almiron is a perfect example. Diego Rossi is a perfect example. Both have had European interest, and if you get players with European interest choosing the MLS, not just for a big pay cut, because these guys aren't getting you know paid six, seven million a year, eight million a year. Um, like some of these guys are in, in other countries. I mean, they're getting paid really well, but you know, in the, in, in, when you compare the salary thing, it's not just that they're overpaying to get these guys. These guys are also buying into the projects. They're buying into the MLS model, and they're buying into MLS as, a, as an opportunity, as a league in general, to kind of you know 
get them where they want to be as a prof- professional, and that's to be playing, again, eventually in the biggest and brightest leagues um, that the world has to offer. So, again, you know, we're going to be covering a lot on this podcast with MLS. Um, you know, we hope that you guys who are, you know, coming here for the Serie A, for the Premier League and everything like that, you guys will also tune in for our MLS coverage because we're going to do our best to kind of cater to what audience, uh, you know, supports us in that regard. So, uh, yeah, we, we also appreciate you guys you know, giving us the... Uh, the, uh, the support on that end as well, because we do want to educate across all leagues, not just the big ones that everyone seems to be covering. Yeah, certainly something bubbling in the in the US and, and the MLS for sure. But Wayne Rooney getting 50% of the budget, that, that cannot be good for the dressing room, can it? But I think we need to move on and it's on to our player profile. We thought we'd profile Kepa Arizabalaga the new Chelsea keeper former Atletico Bilbao keeper that went to the London club for 80 million euros and we actually caught up with Justin Sherman who's a uh, marker writer marker contributor and uh, at these football times writer as well isn't he Matt yeah Justin's a great guy I you know he's one of those guys that kind of you know uh, I'm always interacting with on Twitter and he's a, he's a great source of knowledge for for La Liga and I think he's he's going to give us some great insight on Kepa who uh, I'm sure Chelsea fans are really eager to get to know more so yes uh, I'm Justin Sherman I'm a senior writer for these football times uh, I additionally do staff writer work for Marca uh, in their English page and I'm also an editor for Get Italian Football News Wow, some credentials there, Justin. You're going to talk to us about Kepa Arizabalaga. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. The only thing is on the Z, it's a TH, so it's Arizabalaga. Ah. But it's yeah, it's, it's even for a Spaniard, it's very hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what, why don't you tell us a bit about his career? He's only 23 years old, so that's a, a baby in in goalkeeping terms, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, so like many other athletic club uh, players, he he came up through their youth ranks. Uh, the f- famous Lizama Academy. Um, he started there about the, around the age of 10, and then he just worked his way up uh, until he finally got into the B-side, Bilbao Athletic. Um, he made a few starts there before they gave him a couple of loans. Um, he had two loans, I believe. And then he finally was called up to the senior side in 2016 uh, under Ernesto Valverde. It was actually his final season in charge of uh, Athletic Club. And since then, he's been the undisputed number one. Um, he's made about a total of 53 appearances. And yeah, it's just, uh, his, that's the way history wrote it. He's just, he was basically becoming the, the face of the team, face of the club. And yeah, so that's really how he kind of progressed into that role. Wow, it's a gargantuan fee, isn't it? Why don't you tell us a bit about why that much money and what he's actually going to bring to Chelsea? Sure, so I mean... At first, when I when I saw the the move, I was a little bit surprised just because it was so tightly under wraps. Like it kind of seemed like it came out of nowhere. Um, also, I mean, by all intents and purposes, if you're going to pay around that type of money, you would think for 20 million more, you, they probably could have gotten Jan Oblak from Atletico Madrid. Um, but I mean, it was desperate times called for desperate measures in a sense. So they kind of had to do what they had to do. Um, in terms of the fee, I mean, yeah, it's extraordinary. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's kind of how the, the transfer market's been progressing. And if you want a player that badly on that short of notice, you're going to have to pay that fee, especially when it comes to athletic club. They do not negotiate. <laughs> so you know, you have to pay their buyout clause for their players or you're not getting them. So they, you know, at the end of the day, Chelsea really didn't have much of a choice. Um, in terms of what they're getting, so this is a loaded question. There's a lot of things that they could be getting. Um, you know, for one, Kepa is probably, in terms of just reflexes, I don't say this lightly either because Ika Casillas is my favorite goalkeeper of all time. He's probably the closest I've seen to him at that age in terms of reflexes and, and shot stopping. Um, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, he can just get down and stop shots that you, you wouldn't even believe are possible. It's really, really something to watch. So in that sense, I mean, just as a shot stopper, he's, he's fantastic. Um, even from the spot, from penalties, he's terrific. He saved, I believe, two out of three last year. Um, he also did some great penalty stoppage work when he was with the U19s for the Spanish national team. So in that sense, he's great. When it comes to other things that I think he may struggle with in the Premier League, I think he really needs to work on his ability to assert himself uh, in, on crosses, and especially in the Premier League because, as you know, that's a much more physical league than La Liga. So he could see himself struggle a little bit there. And then also, when it comes to Sarri's system, 
I know everyone was very excited because they believe that Kepa is a better distributor of the ball versus Courtois, which in a sense is true. Um, but sorry, it seems to me that he likes to build more from the back, um, from the, the, the center backs or fullbacks on up. Whereas Kepa, at least with Athletic, he was much more adept at, at spraying the ball further downfield, which he was astonishingly accurate with. I believe he was a third in all of La Liga last year uh, in terms of accuracy when it comes to, to pushing the ball forward to midfielders and forwards. So that 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 is already established. The thing that Sarri is going to have to work on is just the short passing um, and, and getting him a little bit more comfortable with that. I believe he had like two giveaways last year of short passes that led to direct goals. So that's something that he definitely will have to work on. But I mean, I, I have complete faith in, in his ability and he'll just need a little bit of patience. Um, obviously, it's a huge step. Anyone going to a different country, learning a new language, new surroundings, you know, you're going to have to adapt. So just like De Gea when he went to Man U, I mean, the first season is going to be a little bit of an adjustment, but I have complete faith he's going to end up being uh, worth the transfer fee in the long run. The word patience is certainly one that Maurizio Sarri has, has recently used in an interview saying that he's not on Thibaut Courtois' level. And from your description, he seems kind of the opposite of him. I mean, Thibaut Courtois is not very good distributor he's very good and very aggressive in the air uh, and he's a decent shot stopper but he's, he's not the best shot stopper so maybe Chelsea uh, upgrading in some departments and downgrading in a couple but maybe for a player with a higher ceiling would you agree oh absolutely um, I mean at 23 years old uh, the ceiling is infinite for Kepa um, you know Courtois by all his purposes I mean he, he's gotten a bad rap as someone with the ball at his feet but I actually looked at some stats from last season, and I mean, he was fairly comparable to Kepa when it comes to distribution. It's just he's a little, yeah, he's just a little bit more clumsy with it, so it looks like he may not be as adept. But just in terms of shot stopping, I definitely think uh, Kepa's a little bit more reliable. He's not as good as with his feet at stopping the ball as Courtois, but Courtois also struggles uh, at times to letting goals that you just don't expect a keeper of that level to do. And Kepa just doesn't seem to make those types of mistakes. So I think... You know, right now, I, I would probably say Courtois is a better keeper all around. But in the long run, I would definitely, definitely choose Kepa. Mm, and, and gun to your head, how good could he be? Give us a, a player that you could pitch him up against if he fulfilled his potential. Wow. Um, I mean, it's tough. Uh, if all things go according to plan, I, I think. And he develops his aggression, um, gets better in the air. I mean, I have no reason not to believe that he could at least get somewhere near De Gea's level. Um, you know, De Gea had the same problem when he first came. He was just a little timid, uh, quiet. Um, I mean, even still, when, when I watch De Gea on the, on the Spanish national team, I mean, he's not the best in the air. So that's stuff that he's still, you know, uh, evolving. And that's something that Kepa will have to learn. But if everything goes according to plan and, and he doesn't let the transfer fee and the, and the outside noise get to him in his first season... I have no reason to believe that he can't reach the level of De Gea or at least be within the top three keepers in, in the Premier League for sure. Wow, certainly exciting for Chelsea fans if all goes according to plan. Justin, thanks so much for being on the State of Play. Where can people find out more about you, man? Um, so you can follow my Twitter account, at uh, jshermofficial. And you can find me on These Football Times. Uh, I am also weekly on uh, Marca in English. And yeah, but anything that I, I, I write or, or post or talk about will be put up on my Twitter account so you can follow me there for sure. Oh, thanks so much, Vera. And thank you so much, Justin, for giving up a bit of your time to come on the State of Play. That was an excellent, excellent summary of the move. And hopefully you Chelsea fans will uh, take something away from that. Matt, what do you think of this move? Record-breaking transfer fee for a goalkeeper. Well, I think, again, everyone's going to look at the price, right? I think that's obvious, you know, when you see, um, you know, they lose Courtois, then you would say, okay, well, who they replace him with? And they look and they see the fee and they think, oh, my gosh, this guy's going to cost a ton of money. But that's what the market looks for right now, right? We saw what Allison Becker went for. We saw what Ederson went for, Pickford went for in previous years. The price is only going up, and that kind of speaks volumes as to how much of an impact this position is now having. Again, of course, in recent years, or in, in what most people accustomed to um, or associate with a, with a goalkeeper is a guy who's just really as the last line of defense. It's to prevent goals, to do this, to do that, and to just not allow anything kind of, you know, kind of leak in there. But obviously, you know, we're seeing, you know, the, the, the involvement that keeper has in the buildup, the passing game, um, stretching the field of play, and, and this and that, what have you. 
And of course, you know, Kepa going to Chelsea, um, world record fee for a goalkeeper now, obviously surpassing Alison Becker, who moved to Liverpool earlier in the in the transfer window. It look, it's a lot of money, but the only reason, the only only way it's going to be a disappointment or it's going to be looked at looked down upon is if Kepa doesn't produce, if he's not the keeper that you know people thought they were getting when he, they bought when Chelsea bought him from Atletico Bilbao. If he produces and he's a superstar player for them, again, he's very young too. It's not like they're buying a guy who's 29, 30, who's kind of more, uh, you know, kind of approaching father time or really the prime of his career or towards the tail end of his prime, the prime of his career. They're getting a guy that really could be um, their solution or their uh, their goalkeeper for the next decade. And if, if a guy like Kepa is able to come in there and do everything that Justin's saying that he, was, how he has accomplished in La Liga... Then I don't think there should really, really much any concern uh, for for Chelsea fans in that. Look, you you this position is very important. You look at what the other teams in the league that you're chasing have at this position: Ederson at City, you have Allison at Liverpool, you have De Gea. Like you can't, you can't. We saw also what the how important this role is in in a big match. Again, we saw Carius Carius in the Champions League final leaked in a couple goals. They went out there and they got a big goalkeeper. Chelsea lost Courtois. They go and immediately address the position. Like, if you're a Chelsea fan, would you rather than be uh, penny pinching to address this area? Maybe getting a, a guy who's a veteran or is a one or two year guy. Maybe he's on the on the decline. Or would you rather say, you know what, this guy's going to cost us a lot of money, but he's very good. He's one of the best keepers in in, in Europe. We're going to spend the money on him, and we're going to make sure we fill the void the right way versus, again, being, uh, uh, you know, uh, negligent and, and, and not trying to, you know, address the problem head on. Because, again, you know, obviously Chelsea have had a really bit of a, uh, not a difficult uh, uh, transfer window per se. I mean, of course, they most fans would have liked them to do more than what they did. But Jorginho, they got sorry. They get Kepa. They obviously get Mateo Kovacic. So overall, it's a good way for them to end their transfer window and that they kind of shore up the midfield, um, which has, you know, it looks very promising with Kante, Jorginho, and of course Kovacic. But then you also get your long, long-term long solution immediately for Courtois. I think the biggest mistake they could have made was if they let Courtois go so late in this transfer window and have to wait until maybe January to readdress it or re-explore. And then in that case, you wind up spending more than you probably want to. Good on Chelsea for spending the money. Listen, it's a lot of money, of course. But again, if if Kepa comes and produces and he does everything that we expect him to do and that Justin uh, talks highly of him, then there's going to be no concerns. There's going to be no problems with the fee paid out because in the end, it's worth it. There ain't no problem. There ain't no problem. It ain't no problem. <laughs> it ain't no problem. It ain't no problem. Uh, no, seriously, though, I think, uh, yeah, for sure. Kepa, it's a seven-year deal. Seven-year contract. Chelsea would not give him a seven-year deal. Their commitment. They're committing. They, they believe in this guy. Definitely believe him. And, and uh, you know, Chelsea have vigorous scouting network, and I'm sure they've not decided lightly to go and spend 80 million euros on this guy so uh let's see where that one ends up but i think matt that's all we have time for today man unfortunately this has been fun though yeah this one's been great again you know thanks you guys for for all the support for uh you know you know the three tweets the positive feedback we do appreciate we read everything we do get of course we really want to hear more from you guys and also we just want to thank our guests for coming on we're going to try to do more of this we have a ton of guests we have lined up for uh you know future episodes and we hope uh, you guys will tune in for those as well and if you have if you have any recommendations as to guests you'd like for us to bring on please feel free to reach out. You can DM them, slide into the DMs. You guys can tweet at us. You guys know the handle, at uh, State of Play Pod. Anything you guys are, anything on your mind with the podcast, anything you'd like to see us do, feel free to uh, send it over to us and we uh, we will take it into consideration. Yeah, definitely give us some feedback and definitely give us some players to profile. I mean, we don't have an unlimited amount of players to profile. I mean, me and, Matt have got a list but keep giving this to us Give, keep giving us names and if you want to email us uh, stateofplaypod at gmail.com for any collaborative stuff or for sponsorship reasons you can find me at Pet Berisha on Twitter at P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A and you can find Matt at at Matt underscore Santangelo all my articles all my insight my memes my gifts my funny videos um, any type of promotion that we kind of put out with this podcast as well as others that I work on it'll all be there so again if you guys want to know more about me what I'm doing just follow me on Twitter you'll get everything there yeah he's, he's, he's doing a lot the man's Wearing doing a lot, a lot. Of hats. lots of funny gifts as well so, <laughs> so definitely subscribe review 
us uh, and give us some feedback as, as matt mentioned we're always open to it even if you hate us tell us at least we can try and change that but the next episode episode three will probably be airing uh, week commencing monday the 27th sometime that week probably yeah yeah we me and me me and me and pet are going on vacation you know i'm going uh soon uh, within a day actually of recording this one and then a, a couple days later he's going to be going on his so uh <laughs> we need a little bit of break here we're going to celebrate maybe uh get a couple drinks in us then come back fresh for uh that that uh next episode which again of course what pet just mentioned will drop most likely on the 27th again of course um we got to make sure we get everything squared away with our scheduling and, and our making sure nothing overlaps but 27th is our our next uh the aim for our next episode definitely so uh, thank you guys so much for listening and enjoy your commutes wherever you are <laughs>